when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to BCPLN Stacked and Let's Unwind with award-winning author Vanessa Veselka. Let's learn about Vanessa's new book release, The Great Offshore Grounds, her writing process, and inspirations. Thank you to Penguin Random House for organizing the virtual book tour. Hey, this is Sarah. And this is Stephen from the Bay County Public Library. Hi, Vanessa. We're so excited to have you on BCPLN Stacked. Would you introduce our listeners to your new title, The Great Offshore Grounds? Yes, absolutely. Um, the Great Offshore Grounds is a novel about two sisters who are um, pretty broke and uh, don't have a lot of uh, prospects in front of them, who are 33 at the time when the novel starts and are going on these sort of second, they're going, they both end up on journeys to try to figure out where their place in the world is. And uh, they go all over America. Um, but the America of the novel is also a place of, uh, of tension and ghosts and histories that are unavoidable, personal, and also um, collective. So that's that's one way I would now, my publisher and I used to have a joke because I used to, he would, people would say, what's your elevator pitch? And I would say, it's a neo-pagan nautical thriller about the open door policy <laughs> in China. And, and then he said, we'll never use that. Never say that to anybody. But... I still, I still think it actually describes the book. So, <laughs> part of our research process is we go back and read a lot of what you've written. We've, oh, okay. we've uh, gone back and scoured your website with a fine tooth comb. We've, we've <laughs> watched some. I've watched a whole bunch of other interviews with you. Uh, so I know that at one point you said this book was going to be roughly seven hundred pages long. <laughs> the editing process over the time you kind of whittled it down to the 400 plus that it is now. Um, but I also understand that you like to wait till about three quarters of the way through the book before you kind of figure out where you're going to go with it. Um, yes. So if you could just, I'd like to know a little bit about the uh, the writing process and the editing process of all this with, with how you've got it from that 700, knowing when you were going to stop and then getting it down to the, the half that it was. Right. Right. Um, well, you know, it was when I first set out to write the book, I thought, oh, it's going to be about 350 pages. And then it just kept going. And as I, which I found to actually be something kind of depressing and not inspiring, <laughs> because it just felt very out of control to me. Like, I just felt very, like, this book is never going to end, you know, as the years ticked on, you know, and I was still discovering more story in it, and, and getting closer to the story I wanted to tell. It, it just felt like it was endless. And then when it hit its its top point, um, and I should say there's some difference between manuscript pages and printed pages, you know, uh, so it's not quite half, it's more like taking a third down. But, um, but when it hit that point, you know, I knew that uh, when, I, when I look at what got taken out later, um, almost everything stayed in it just got carved down a little bit. And I and one of the, there were two things that helped me a lot in that process. One uh, was something that a very smart reader said to me at one point um, when I had, you know, the 800 or 700 page version. And she said, you know, it's part of the problem is it's also interesting. And she said, so I can't, it's a signal and noise problem. I can't tell what you care about, mm -hmm. you know? And so I, 
that was actually really, really helpful because I think a lot of times when people are editing their work or if they're newer writers and they're engaging in their work, you know, you get told a lot of this, like you have to murder your darlings or this or that. There's sort of a self-abusive way that editing is talked about. But the reality is when you get to a certain point of doing your job, even if you're not, you know, I may deeply dislike a writer who is very, very good at their craft. I just don't like what they do. You know what I mean? So it's not that kind of judgment. But when you get to a certain level, you're not cutting out bad from good, you're cutting out good from good. And what you're really doing is choosing difference. You know, do I go this way or do I go that way? And everything is a choice and everything is a trade-off. And so, you know, you start to have to make those trades with a lot, as you make them with more and more clarity, you know, um, that becomes a simpler process. But in the beginning, it's, you know, it, it's the clarity that you need that you may not have yet about what it's really about. So the, one of the things I used to edit uh, down a big section of it was to, um, to say, like, if I handed this novel to somebody, what would I feel like I'd failed if they didn't get about it? Like, what part of the story that if they didn't see that that was in this, I would feel like I failed? And I started from that point. Like, and so then I started to just use those things as sort of homing devices for editing. And, uh, and then I also, the second part of it is, um, you know, I'm along the way towards the latter half of the whole, you know, saga of the writing this book, you know, I, uh, I met some really wonderful people who helped me edit it. My agent, Sarah and um, Tim, and also Anna Kaufman at uh, Knopf, all um, really in those later stages fundamentally helped me um, with, you know, I had played Tetris with the chapters in the book so many times at that point that like, you know, I could, I, I had now knew at least 170 ways they could go in whatever order, you know? Nice. And so, so that part was like really having somebody else sort of step back and go like, let's do a little bit of rearranging was, you know, it was like, oh, I had it that way once five years ago, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of, so yeah. And I do like on the point you said about, uh, about not knowing the ending, it takes a lot of stamina to write a long novel or to write anything, right? And uh, that's a long work. I, I try to keep, preserve my curiosity as long as I can. So if I don't know, I'm writing to find out. And, and I'm engaged just like anybody else in what those futures might be for those characters. And that allows me to sit through it and keep doing the work in a way where if I plan it out or I know all those things, I've kind of sucked the emotional life out of that experience internally to myself. I've played it out. And then I have to go and do the work on the page. And I'm one, then I'm too bored. Or two, I'm not able to hold my attention through the work it takes to go from what's not good to what's better. Um, now, as far as the initial core idea that you started with was this, what was that, that, that seed that you germinated? It, it, to start the process for this one? Um, with this one, I really did start with uh, working backwards from some basic questions, which was, you know, um, I was deciding between what kind of project I wanted to take on next. And, and I started with saying, what don't I feel I do well? What am I scared to write about? And the what I don't think I do well was, was kind of plot. I was wondering about, you know, certain elements of structural uh, things. And then uh, the other one, what am I afraid to write about? And also don't feel like I would do well, not that I had tried was love, you know, and, and then I thought, you know, I said, well, wait a minute, you know, what are the books that really have meant the most to me? And 
a lot of them were these big 19th century or earliest 20th century novels. And, and they all have love in them and they all have this scope. And I really do love the scope of surveying the entire, you know, the culture, the society. I'm sort of by nature a little bit encyclopedic uh, in my, I'm maximalist in my, <laughs> uh, because that's how my mind works. And so I thought, well, um, let me see if I can take the way I like to write sonically and more freely uh, that's very much post-1950s uh, and at the line level and also take, you know, these kinds of big novel conceits and things and put them together. And I don't know that I succeeded completely with that, but that's where it started. I think some of our questions will relate that I think you did succeed in that and this oh, kind good. of pairs up, <laughs> this pairs up with that um, last question. In reading The Great Offshore Grounds, I savored your use of verbiage. The lyrical sentence structures and the descriptions transported me to a strong sense of place. I'm interested in which authors may have influenced your writing style or how did you develop your writing style? Well, I can tell you who influenced me a lot. Uh, I can't tell you if it shows in my work in any way, but I can say the ones who moved me. Um, Dostoevsky for humor. Um, <laughs> I love his sense of humor. It gets overlooked all the time, but it's it's absolutely absurdist. Um, Marguerite Duras for sort of just uh, sensuality and also place. Jean Ries, uh, again, for both, um, but also a kind of quality of the way she writes about colonialism uh, and uh, sort of the imperial Gothic, which was an idea that I've always been kind of interested in. Paul Bowles for, the sort of kind of steady ice in the veins, panoramic, slow pan, you know, <laughs> slow pan across a scene, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, obviously the book takes up, you know, Melville a little bit and, and the Wilshire Essex and some of these other things, Conrad uh, very much, uh, as much as he is a problematic figure in many ways. Uh, and uh, he is also, he, he writes about things, about nihilism and things going to seed and this sort of vegetation of it all in this way that um, I think he points at, at yeah. So I, there's something that's always uncanny in the tone that when you actually look at it in his work, you're like, well, where does it come in? Where does it come in? And and it's it's hard to say where it comes in. It's like that 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 other part that's there that maybe don't you notice sometimes that um, that when you're looking for the line or the paragraph or the thing that actually makes the feeling you might be having work that it's not actually in there in the work. It's in there in something you take away from the totality of the work, but it's not actually found in the detail. It's found in the expansive nature. He's, that's what I mean by that. So those are some people for sure that, um, you know, I definitely grew up being influ influenced by. You, you can def as she was saying, you can definitely see there is a lot of influence in this novel by those great American novels, be it Moby Dick, Heart of Darkness, a little bit of a, this is kind of a road story. So I, there's definitely, I felt some Jack Kerouac on the road as well. And you mm -hmm. kind of touched on it with Melville being a problematic figure. In this day and age, the heroes that, you know, we kind of once had, when we look back at the, the existence they had, they're very problematic. And mm -hmm. you mentioned guiding yourself by constellations of people, 
um, and picking up on things. So how do you pick the people, the constellations that you're going to guide yourself by and mix them in while still paying, paying tribute to the things that they created that are part of our cultural right. overview, but still ad addressing those, those errors, those questionables, those problematic pieces? Well, um, that's a huge question. I am, I'm not somebody who, uh, like there are some artists that I consider to be fairly heinous um, and I, I can't enjoy their work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, maybe I should make it. However, I think when you look historically, it's a harder thing because it, there's just a lot more nuance to what people knew and when. And I guess there's that question of culpability and as a citizen, I have different answers for that than I do as a novelist. As a novelist, um, I'm very interested in the nuance and failures of people and where they don't agree with things and where they bring up conflict and where they are, you know, where, where all the ambivalences <laughs> are and, and in seeing the humanness in that. And as a citizen, I don't have time for a lot of that stuff sometimes. I mean, I do when I'm engaging with people to talk about stuff, but you know, it's a very different thing. So I, I am, when I'm writing, I'm writing as a novelist. I'm not writing as a citizen. But I think where the citizenry comes in is that um, there's a sort of brokenheartedness, lament and, uh, and hesitant hope all tangled together in my relationship to America. And, and that question that I cannot answer um, that comes again and again to me. And so I try to get close to that. I think that um, we're in a time where nuance, uh, well, we're in a time where like uh, so many important things are being brought to the fore that have needed to come to the fore and, and be attended to for so long. That's the primary thing I see happening, but also not necessarily a time of nuance. And um, so the discussions in certain quarters are very shrill about a lot of these things. And there's sort of a, you know, a list that things can get put on right? This is no longer good, <laughs> you know? And, you know, realistically, wait five years, it'll be good again. And it won't be. Other things will not be good. You know what I mean? Like there will be a movement. So the question is, can you look at somebody like Conrad? And, you know, you read the Chinua Achebe, you, you know, read all the things, but to also understand Brantlinger, who wrote about him as well, and, and wrote about, or Edward Said, who wrote about him as well, and was a huge fan, right? <laughs> like, so you have the person who's the post-colonial, you know, critique you know, I mean, there's all different ways. And what they saw in his work was nihilism. What, you know, he referred to as the sort of the endless knitting machine, this thing that could not stop itself, you know? And I think I thought about that in writing because I th think uh, without any spoilers of the book, there's a relentlessness to the way that life moves on uh, that can be, seem like the strongest offense against grief. Um, the way that life just continues to generate out of, you know, weeds and broken pots and, you know, whatever, even if you just broke your heart, you know, even you, if you just lost someone, even if you just, you know what I mean? That forward march. And I think there's a nihilistic sort of helpless random way to look at it. And then there's a, a sense of just sort of like that constant creativity. And um, so I think Conrad is somebody who's an example who offers a very bad example about how to understand difference and offers a really 
powerful and what was not in the world, incredible example about the, um, his ability to point at something that was so hard to describe and, and see it. And those things are interconnected. So, yeah, so I, that's kind of my long answer to that. And it's, it, it ties home to me because obviously I am a, uh, I'm a huge horror fan. So a lot of the stuff that I enjoy is, you know, belt its founding on like Lovecraft kind of stuff where right. you have these cosmic entities. But if you look back at the person he was, oh, he's a garbage individual. But mm -hmm. because, but that influence has just influenced so many other creative things and opened doorways for people now to come in and re reimagine things. It's, it's interesting to see how something's, the horribleness of what he was and what he was thinking at the time can influence something that means more to other people in a different way. And, and I guess yeah. that's what I am. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's the other thing is that's an active thing too. You know, that's the creativity of the people who saw his work and and rescued the best parts of him from it and actually made it into something new and to me that is the most creative act now if you just say i will not even touch his work you are also saying i will not even make it into something new i will not even rescue the better parts i will leave them all you know and and that's i don't know that that gets us any further i think that's a, a great analysis i'm an artist as well as a a librarian and um, my dad said something when I was in high school he's a scientist and as an art form it's also like doing research and you just take what's been done and then you're like pushing that a little bit further mm -hmm. comparing it to like scientific research which I thought was which is very similar to what you yeah. just mentioned um, I wanted to talk about ships and Livy she's my okay. favorite character oh is she um, good she is and first, I love how she renames people and things, which is something that Kirsten allows her to do as a girl. So Essex is her adopted brother. Shackleton is the name of an early car. Her personal identity is so strong as an explorer, even from an early age. And though not all of her experiences were good, Livy seems happiest when she's got the freedom of being on a boat. And um, this is a very roundabout way to ask, um, how did you study kind of the boat and fishing scenes um, from Alaska to Panama City and um, the historical aspects like the tall ships and how it defines Livy as a character? Oh, yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> I, I lived in Southeast Alaska for a period of time so I knew, uh, you know, I mean, I, Southeast Alaska has a, a place in my personal history, but I never fished. Um, and so my uh, personal, the, the Klingit elements and some of that came from living there. And also I, I was, my father was a, adopted by Kiksadi Klingit when I was very young. And so I have, you know, sort of family ties through that in a sort of more tangential way. Um, so those pieces, you know, I was very careful about for all the reasons you would expect to try to, you know, I, I know what I worked from, I know what I told as stories, I know what I didn't tell as stories, you know what I mean? I tried to use and follow something that I could hopefully pronounce as apo, which is a, you know, a, a sort of story ownership protocol among the Klingit about who gets to tell what stories. So I tried to follow you know, that, that and that kind of research came from my experience and then also, you know, asking people looking into it. But the, the fishing stuff, you know, I talked to that I had to, I had sort of three different sources. So it was more traditional research than I ever do usually. Um, my research tends to be like, I'm obsessed with something and then ultimately it kind of bleeds into something else I'm doing. Not this kind of like, I need to know this and then going down a rabbit hole as much. 
So with the fishing, you know, I talked to some friends who are fishermen, but, and then I have a good friend who um, is a fisherwoman. She worked and her, her experiences definitely enriched the book a great deal. So I gave the character, one of the characters, her name, uh, which was Kirsten. And, um, oh. but Kirsten, the real Kirsten, who's not like the Kirsten in the book, really, but the real Kirsten, um, did, uh, was out in Dutch Harbor, was up in Neck Neck, um, did fish tickets, you know, for Trident, and then ended up on this different, um, you know, a gill netter in various places fishing. And so I worked with her on uh, a lot of times I had pictures from her and also stories in it, but mostly it was like, hey, draw out the boat you were just on. You know, and then there were nerdier parts, talked a lot to harbor masters in different ways and, you know, that kind of stuff. Now with the tall ship, it was very different. I went and worked on a tall ship and I knew that Livy was going to have to navigate something without modern electronics. Um, that was just one of these things that came at a sort of scene level. And it's funny because the scene level of it didn't actually ultimately end up in the book. But early on, I just had this idea that she was going to need to do that. And I wasn't thinking tall ships at all. I was thinking like sailboats, something small. Like I wasn't thinking tall ships, but I talked to a friend of mine one night uh, around a fire and I was like, I, I gotta figure out how you start to read or think about sailing without electronics. And he, and he said, well, you know, I used to be a tall ship sailor. I'm like, I didn't know that. So we started talking he said, yeah, I, I went to work and I trained on this one ship, you know, so the next day, because I'm a kind of like get it done kind of person, <laughs> the next day, you know, I had reached out to them. I'd written them a, a letter, you know, that's basically um, begging, trying charming begging was kind of what I was going for. And uh, so like, I don't have any money and I know it's already too late and your season's already started, but will you take me as a sale trainee and uh, for free and now? And so, <laughs> and, and because they were, I think, a little short staffed that summer, they agreed. So I worked on the U.S. Brig Niagara for about a month. I'm no great tall ship sailor. Um, and it was very hard. It was about 18 hours a day most of the days. Uh, you know, it was, it, there, there were many things about that experience that, that informed the book, but also the ways in which it was very, that was a very, very rigid book, not rigid in a bad way, like in the sense of, um, you know, it was a lot of Navy people on the book. Like it was very regimented right, how you respond and behaved. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm grateful for that too, because it gave me a sense of like, what's missing when that's not there. So I had a lot of fun in creating the Neva as, you know, a ship that is really, you know, run by a Russian oligarch who's like forgotten about it. And it's just sort of unspooling down the coast. You know? <laughs> so, um, but the language was really important. So uh, to sum up about research, language, you need three things, in my opinion, you know, when you come out of research, people use it a lot of times as procrastination, where they, they, they prevent themselves from writing because of it, because they don't have enough. Um, and they think they have to do it first. And I think that um, what you really need to know is to get to know enough that you can write with confidence, even about the things that don't show up on the page. So that confidence comes through. It's like I was saying before about like how you can't find it in the line level, but it's there. That confidence comes through. If you know what you can throw out and don't need, that's the best confidence to have, right? Because you know how little you can rely, you know, you need. And you need to know what's within 10 feet of a character, what they can see from where they stand. 
and, you know, not make major mistakes. Like that's, you know, so I eventually got there for the most part. We'll see. I'm doing two events with the Tall Ship America Society and Captain Sabatini of the Niagara. So, <laughs> you know, they, every tall ship person will tell me exactly where they would. That's the head of that program told me, said, yeah, that's what they do even with each other. There's like, I wouldn't have done that. I'm like, I know. I'm just going to sit there like this. <laughs> I tried. I was valiantly trying. Anyway, that's how That I sounds like a lot of fun. And I drove nightcab and I drove, you know, like I, that wasn't research. That was just sort of like a lot of the lousy jobs or bad things that happened there. You know, I've experienced making those choices. So speaking of research, I love to ask this because writers always have such a, a, a fun answer for this. What is the strangest thing in your search history right now? Oh, uh, it's not even interesting though. <laughs> <laughs> It's really not interesting. Uh, kosher keto Shabbat recipes. <laughs> okay, see, you say that's not interesting, but that sounds interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, uh, and what else? I mean, I do a lot of nerdy science stuff too, you know, in a lot of ways. I get really excited by things that are pretty nerdy sometimes. That is definitely something that Sarah and I have, have experienced heavily while doing a lot of these interviews is just, like you said, falling down the rabbit hole and just being like, okay, so what has this led me to? And, you know, <laughs> several right. hours later, you're like, okay, how did I get here again? Let right, exactly. And, and then you end up knowing too much about something that, like, you really shouldn't have been alone in that experiment. <laughs> so, but one thing I do before we go forward, because you asked about history a little bit. And, mm -hmm. and Panama, play, Panama City plays a role, and it plays a very specific role, and it was not chosen by accident. And um, it's because the two ghosts in the novel, Raleigh and Lejeune, um, both have elements of framing the haunting of America in some ways, if you want to, um, which is the initial colonial, sin of colonialism, right? The initial uh, colonialism that drives then the speculation, the sort of joy of the speculator, like the El Dorado is down there. The corporation as a, you know, to become, he's right on the front forefront of the corporation becoming this um, perfectly, uh, you know, where suddenly you are not a blame taking body, as he says at one point, but you are something that can absorb all the failures without ever being accountable. The other one is Lejeune and Lejeune applies to Panama City, which is he is the, he's the, arm of the Teddy Roosevelt imperialist kind of change in America that's going into Guam. And that's why I say open door policy in China, right? Like <laughs> when I say it's a neo-pagan nautical thriller about the open door and policy in China, then that's what I mean, right? Like he's going in all these places, which has this question very rife still today, does the constitution follow the flag? Right? What does it mean to be a citizen? Who gets to be a citizen? Like, you know, and he's the he's the working business end of that, you know, he's in Panama, he's in Guadalcanal, he's in Bay of Pigs, you know, or not the later Bay of Pigs, but like he's in uh, Cuba, he's in, you know, I think he's in, he's in the Philippines, you know what I mean? Like, and so I, that sort of moment of 1905, 1900 to 1910, um, which, you know, your city takes its name from, mm -hmm. right? Um, yes. Is a very interesting moment in history right? Where it's, there's this expansiveness. At that time, in the beginning of that time, I believe the U.S. was, before that, number 19th in the world for militaries, right? Military powers below Portugal. 
and so it really begins the age of imperial militarization and also this kind of like think of the arrogance to cut through a continent you know like on the one hand it's like brilliant engineering on the other hand it's like what are you doing you know i mean like it's there's something um and all of the complexities of well we're going to be here but you're not citizens or we're going to be here but you're you know so i i I was fascinated with both of those. And so that history was something that sort of naturally came in, wasn't something I researched to make a point, but rather wrote towards a better understanding of that point. And it kind of leads into what I was gonna ask, because a lot of people think of writers as being English teachers naturally. And I've, I've heard that you didn't think of yourself as wanting to be so much an English teacher. You wanted to do more of an American history teacher. <laughs> So what are some of those historical obsessions that are outside of what we see inside this particular novel? Oh, I'm kind of always obsessed with um, failing empires in general, you know, <laughs> um, and in the way that cultures clash and move. Um, I would say, you know, I, you know, as with many Americans, you know, I wasn't raised in our education system to have a deep understanding of many different histories that are now. I see my daughter, for instance, they spent a lot of time on, in China, they spent a lot of time in, you know, parts of Africa. And, and, you know, it's a very different kind of survey. So, you know, mine is admittedly um, very much around American history and then also general sort of classic European histories because it's a uh, history, uh, but, but thinking more about like history of ideas. And I think that's the way in which I encounter it the most. I'm fascinated with, with text and how um, myth and text and history interact. Uh, you know, I was probably the only sixth grader in my class who had a fangirl, like really bizarre obsession with Gilgamesh. Um, you know, and, you know, just felt like there's something in this that's terribly disturbing to me, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, yeah. um, you know, I was already sort of maybe uh, longing for the natural man. <laughs> I don't know what uh, was in my mind, except for the sense that there's something on the periphery that we cannot name or meet anymore. What is that? Is mm -hmm. that another situation? Another, what is that other? What is, what is that thing? And how does it become us? How do we become it? You know what I mean? It's so I think all of those ways in which cultures, dominant cultures overlap or submerge, but also I think uh, are fascinating. And, and, and also there's a grief to all of that, that I think is always there. If you're conscious as an American uh, deep, you know, I feel it all the time uh, in that way, but there's also, you know, there's, there's a specificity to life and vitality that is also generated by such terrible clashes as well. And um, so I don't know, I go down rabbit hole, I go down a lot of rabbit holes, but American history is a big one. Um, you know, I, I did kind of get into some Persian history, the different periods. Now Kirsten wishes that her children have an understanding of myth and power of stories and narrative other than the one assigned. She developed the North Star mythology for Justine, for Libby and Cheyenne, which I find wraps around and in many ways I feel Kirsten becomes the North Star 
I, that's me theorizing. Um, but how does the role of mythos play into the character development and sense of identity? And do you have any personal mythologies? I, I, whatever personal mythologies I have, I, I am frequently trying to bury. Uh, okay. <laughs> bury or kill. Um, but okay. they, they continue to arise and I continue to try to root them out. Um, yeah, the the position of myth in, in this novel is very, um, it's very tricky and tense. Uh, mm. Kirsten's way of looking at myth is, you know, again, to state, these, there's a lot of, about class in this novel, right? And they're mm. all poor people. Like everybody in this novel is broke. <laughs> and um, and Kirsten's idea, in a way, is that what she has seen in people who have money or like have more of a, a, a stake that's working um, in different classes is their absolute conviction in their personal history, their personal myth, their absolute conviction in their story, that they are on their personal journey and that they understand the world in terms of that. And so in a way, she's trying to give the girls when she can't give them money and she can't say they're, you know, she's, they're going to be born poor. You know I mean? She, she's trying to give them something that allows them to pass, that would allow them to see their own greatness, to frame their own story and sense of themselves, to, um, to expect great things, to all of this, you know, is the way that she sees that they will not settle for less or feel hopeless or, feel, you know, I mean, that, that it's a way of telling the story of themselves again and again so that they see their own potential. It really backfires in a lot of ways, um, you know, uh, and, and I think with Cheyenne, the character of Cheyenne in particular, she has a very, she's very angry about that because she did try to cross that class, class line. She did try to marry into a situation that, you know, um, brought her into a very different world and she found she still could not fit and that there really were all of these invisible barriers that she couldn't cross or understand. And so she looked back, you know, she sees these kinds of things as um, these person, she blames in a lot of ways that sort of obsession with personal story and personal, um, you know, hero's journey uh, as being something that was a lie all along mm -hmm. that it's only for people with money and it's because they can afford it and it's not for the rest of them and so she's just really caught in that i will say in the initial in an earlier version of the novel actually quite until the last maybe couple months before editing there was a line in the very first chapter where one of the where the, one of the sisters said i'm going to go back in time and kill joseph campbell um, you know, so there's a little more overt at some point in the first page, but yeah, so this question of myth is like, on the one hand, there's this myth that's going that they're testing, you know, mm -hmm. is it real and is it not? And they find out parts are and part, parts aren't. I don't know that Kirsten becomes the North Star. I think that the movement that I, you know, had in there is really the move. So when you're above the, hem you know, the Northern Hemisphere, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, you guide by the North Star. When you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you guide by the Southern Cross, right? And, um, and to me, that movement from the single star fixation into mm -hmm. a cluster of five stars that are also orientation was part of my thinking in that as well was that although I'm that was one of many vague thoughts as I was writing. 
<laughs> so and that reminds me a little of your that towards the end you mentioned with whale, the whales and I can't remember which one navigates by one navigates by memory and yeah. the other navigates in a different way like yes yeah one is, <laughs> is more by memory and geomagnetism and the other is more echolocation you know and uh yeah those those were parts of um how do we how do we how do we know how do we judge how far we've come it is the meat and this you know frankly this comes down to race this comes down to class this comes down to like does the american project work how do we judge it do we say do we judge it by what it should be and do we judge it by memory do we judge it by how far we came or how far we have to go uh, and do we recognize where we are in time in relation to the land that we already have seen through what's familiar? Do we recognize it in terms of, I know I'm going this fast, I know I'm heading in this direction, I know it's been this long since I've left. And that's sort of what the epilogue in some ways takes up and, and you know, I certainly have no answer for, um, but it's, it's definitely, these are the things that I, I stay up at night about still. <laughs> I really do, you know, it's a, anyway. We kind of touched on it with the ghosts of, of Lejeune and, and, and Raleigh. In your previous novel, you had a, another fantastical character, the Rat Queen. Rat Queen. Um, so, and these are all used, you use them to symbolize greater, greater ideas, to condense them into to smaller, easier to digest formats. Uh, why do you choose to do it through fantastical elements as opposed to trying to ground it more in a more realistic kind of? That's a great question. I mean, I think of them as figurative. You know, um, they are speculative elements. Uh, and it's been, and in both of them, you know, it was a little bit, I was a little bit unwilling at first to call them ghosts in this novel because I didn't feel like they were that grounded to me. I, I feel like where these characters come in and it wasn't my intention to bring them in, you know, is, is that when I'm trying to get at something, characters or place, it usually came up when I was trying to understand place. Trying to understand place in Zazen was very much about gentrification. And it was very much about the economics of a red line neighborhood and what had been happening. Um, and in these different areas of subcultures all around. And to me, in trying to describe an urban place like that, you know, it was this idea that things that are alive that are coming up through the cracks of the cement, right? Like the, the, re, the you know, the things that bust up through, the things you can't um, hide. So it was more like I was trying to find a way to describe something that I couldn't find a way to describe. And I began, I do a lot of free writing. So that's how I kind of generate forward. So a lot of times things come up initially just as a sound, you know what I mean? Like they come up sonically or rhythmically or, or like just something that comes out of my mind almost free associatively. And then I'm playing with it. And then in playing with it, it develops into something else. And sometimes I work back to what it means to a degree. But I, the way I like to deal with things like that is a little more um, like in terms of you know, when people talk about metaphors versus analogies or like all different forms of symbolic structure, um, I think that it's really, one of the things I don't like about books in the 50s and some in the 60s is you get these really one-to-one -one equations 
this flower means this thing, you know, and it's just like, this is her sexuality. This is her, you know what I mean? And it's, it all sort of stems from uh, psychology, right? Like this sort of like Freudian, you know, Lacanian kind of psyche that's coming up out of lit where like that seems fine, but you read it now as it's very uncomplex, right? In some ways. And so I, I really think that my hero for that kind of stuff is Miyazaki um, because you know, when I think about things like Princess Mononoke or, um, I said Miyazaki. Why am I drawing a blank? It is Miyazaki, right? I can't remember. Yeah, yes. it is. Oh, anyway, <laughs> you know, that where it's like, well, the, the forest spirit doesn't really mean this and Iron Town is kind of, you know, I mean, we're like everything kind of fits like this. Like, this isn't just standing in for nature, you know, defiled. This is also standing in for like strange, neutral, neutral, chaotic life that may not think of you at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? It has all these different, you know, elements. And so these things as they come up to me also have that. So with the Rat Queen, you know, it, it is this thing that I can't fully describe, except for it's sort of the, what is vital and unkillable about a gentrified neighborhood. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the best I could say it, that cannot be. It's a Godzilla figure, right? Like in some sense. And, and then in this with Raleigh and Lejeune, Raleigh in particular, both of them are disturbed themselves by the histories and the things they've seen and not seen, but not for the reasons you may think they should be disturbed. You know what I mean? Like they're they're in they're caught in between histories too. And so, again, um, some of that came up in free free writing a little bit. But it's always a sign that I can't find maybe through my own failing that I'm not reaching what I'm trying to say, and I step into the world of the figurative, and mm -hmm. and I feel like I can. That's what I'm trying to say, and then I I sort of build it out a little bit. But it's not something. Um, I don't know. I just, it's, it's, it's an aspect of imagination that I don't want to excise, but it's, uh, you know, it's, oh, okay. Here's how I say it. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. at one point in an orange suit and one of his great C-SPAN experience, uh, C-SPAN appearances in court, um, for his crack habit in the nineties, um, <laughs> was before a judge and uh, in handcuffs and the judge said, read the report and said, so you're going 110 miles an hour in your whatever Porsche or whatever he was in. And he said, read this throwing imaginary rats out the window and, and totally deadpan, Downey, said, Downey Jr. says, they were not imaginary to me. And it was <laughs> like, I have that feeling a lot. It's like, <laughs> they were not imaginary to me. So I don't feel like I'm, <laughs> a speculative writer in the true sense. In 2013, you wrote an article for Salon on where are the women Kerouacs? And you have traveled a lot, which I'm sure you're missing right now. Uh, did you create the great offshore grounds to help fill this void in travel fiction? No, no. And, and one thing I will say um, is that that article was originally written for a place called um, The American Reader. And the original mm -hmm. title was Green Screen the lack of female road narratives and why they matter. And the reason I mentioned that is that when Salon picked it up and retitled it, I got uh -huh. all this hate mail from women saying like, you know, there are plenty of women writers about this. I'm like, well, my point wasn't, why aren't there women, no women Kerouacs, is why aren't there women Sal Paradisios? Why aren't there women, you know, mm -hmm. 
Ishmael's. Why aren't there? It wasn't about the writer. It was about why aren't there deeply iconic characters that embody the female quest in a, in the way that's a form of adventure, and. Uh, you know, that was also paired. I wrote that at the same time I was writing a very heavy article for GQ, which was about, you know, the 15, first 15,000 miles I hitchhiked living in truck stops when I was 15 years old and getting sort of being in around serial killers and, and a bunch of other things. And I'd been writing that and I felt this great need to balance that picture mm -hmm. with the other side of what adventure looks like, right? And to put my thoughts there as well. So they were written simultaneously. And I think that um, it was not in my mind that I was going to have necessarily road trips in this book. Mm -hmm. uh, but as characters needed to move and they did not have money, I think the difference is that my experience having had that experience as a teenager was not to go, oh, well, they can't go anywhere. It was because I was <laughs> just like, of course they can go somewhere. Here's exactly how they'd have to do that. Right? So it, I think it really came out of the fact that these were characters that didn't have money and that, um, you know, and, and that was also not something I sat down to say, I'm going to write about characters who don't have money. It was more to me, just like normal characters, normal life, normal people just happens to be that like, you know, the poorest people in the world are just trying to live their lives, getting from one point to another, just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. The difference is there's something coming in, you know, that has to break it up all the time because you have to do this mm -hmm. to get to this, to get to this, right? So there's a uh, a way that gets handled. And so I think, it, you know, when I wanted the characters to move, there wasn't this option to move them in other ways. But um, the, that difference was my own experience at that point, which is, mm -hmm. well, they can move without money. If they're willing to do A, B, and C, they can move without money. So both of them traveled with more money than I traveled with. When I, so um, I also think that, uh, you know, I was uh, kinder on them in that way. Mm -hmm. um, during those travels, they, they come across some interesting characters. Uh, one of my, my favorites here is, is Jersey. Try that again. Jersey, the uh, middle uh, Slovakia. Uh, and he's kind of the heart of the novel, the, the soul of it in a way. And yes. I, I kind of wanted to say, what is, he's kind of living this, you know, non-existence where he's doing his stuff and nobody's seeing it. So I guess that leads to, what is something great that you've done that nothing, no one else has seen? Oh, I don't know. Um, you know, the best songs I ever wrote, I wrote after a period where I felt done with music and where I had really sort of consciously said, I'm walking away from this completely. And um, some years later, I wrote an album of material that was without a doubt the best work I'd ever done um, and did nothing with it. Uh, and, and that was a, I don't know how I feel about that, but I think that it did give me a really clear sense of my own instincts um, and development, I think. But this is exactly the point with Yerchi is that he's, he is the center of the novel in many ways, right? He is the soul. There's something in that chapter that is intentionally meant to be an island within the book. Um, and it's because of this question, here he is, he is an artist. You know, he's 
you know, he's a stonemason and he's, you know, also doing, he's building a castle, right? He's got, <laughs> he's got dreams, right? And, um, but the question that's in the center of that, that Cheyenne asks him in that scene, um, the sort of penultimate scene in that uh, section is, when did you get okay with being nothing? And that's one of the fundamental core questions of the book. These are characters who, you know, um, you know, talk about coming of age or you talk about your own personal myths. Age 13 to 25 or 27, maybe you're gonna have your coming of age myths and your, um, and your ideas of yourself and what you wanna be and what you think is cool and not cool. And I don't mean that even at the aesthetic sense, I mean more like ethically or one other thing. You know, what, what you think life is about, what it means, what you're willing to trade for X amount of time of your life, all those things, right? And then you get to a point where because our society values and you know, status, money and beauty, right? Like that's kind of the three things you can have, status, money, and beauty. Status meaning like your job can confer a name that has status that tells you, oh, so-and-so's this, right? Like, and it's something that can mm -hmm. be passed on as a commodity in a conversation. So you, so maybe you get to a point and none of the things you've done have yielded anything in those particular areas, right? Do you keep going and doing what you do and face the fact that that may not be happening and probably is less as potential matters less and less as you age, right? Like who cares? You have great potential to be a skier at 35. Well, look, great, good luck, have fun on the slopes, right? But it's not gonna, so, so as potential collapses, right? That, and, or it just becomes less socially meaningful. How much do you wanna do the things you do if there's absolutely no social payoff for it in any way. How much do you want to do? And a lot of people find, particularly in the arts and other things, that like, no, I'm going to go get a real life or I'm going to go get a real job. You know, like there's always people talk about what adulthood looks like. And I, that's one that makes me crazy when people like, when people are talking about like, well, then I became an adult. It's like, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that I became an adult because I became a better capitalist. You know what I mean? Like, I think that like you can, there's a balance there and however you want to. So to tie that up, these are characters who've gotten to that point and they know where they're landing in a way. Um, and they're trying to figure out, you know, all of them are like, do I continue on? Do I go from here? What do I do at this? And then, so she meets Yoshi at this moment where he's made this amazing thing and also is saying, nobody's going to see it. And I'm not even going to try to show it to anybody. And, um, and she asks him, you know, when did you get okay with being nothing? And that is one of those questions. Like, what does it mean to really face, particularly in this country of celebrity culture? And like, I would almost say that your access to media, whether it's social media or anything, that your access to media notoriety and engagement is almost a form of class in this country at this point and, and functions that way. And so like to be nothing, in that to be, you know, all of those parts is, I'm just, it takes a great deal of courage. So I, I feel like my characters have a lot of courage, even if they lack a lot of other things. But that question of being nothing is not something Cheyenne's ready for, but something that she touches on in that moment. I, on the other hand, am not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, your book explores the concept of motherhood. I don't want to share too much since um, we do have plot twist, but Kirsten gives so much of herself being a single mother, despite not physically being able to provide a lot. Um, even Essex chooses her kind of over his biological mother. Can you share a little bit more about the concept of motherhood in the great offshore grounds and what it means to be a family? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really love about the character Kirsten is that um, she actually doesn't want to be a mother. You know, uh, she decides at 19 that she's not going to have an abortion, mm -hmm. even though it means having a baby, you know, a baby alone with no money and no prospects. She thinks she's going to be doing it with a friend who's also pregnant initially. But then the friend decides she doesn't want a baby. And so she, Kirsten decides to take both and ends up with, you know, two girls, Cheyenne and Livy, who are the center of the novel. And that's the beginning of sort of their story. But she quickly realizes, and it's only really mentioned in part of the book, she quickly realizes that this is not, that it has been a terrible mistake, you know? That it has truly been a terrible mistake, that everything she wanted out of her own life is now out of reach for her and stays out of reach. Um, I love her for that as a character in the sense that um, she really wants and has this impulse to freedom, but she's just totally decent as a human enough to realize that she's not willing to abandon two kids or, or you know, try to sort of be a really lousy parent or, be, you know what I mean, like things like that to just get what she needs out of it. So she's not a martyr. She's a pretty grumpy, very, you know, has a lot of agency, not much of a pushover, very much her own kind of character. But I think that it's like, we don't talk enough about women who don't want to have kids a lot of times. I mean, there's sort of, you know, cocktail talk about that. And there's some, so I'm not saying it doesn't get talked about. I don't think anybody in the novel actually wants to be a mom. Um, and yet... Uh, they have to deal with different elements of that. So the other mother doesn't want to be a mom. Kirsten doesn't necessarily really want to be a mom. Neither Livy nor Cheyenne, I can tell you as the people who invented, the person who invented them, ever thought about having kids. You know, and, and so there is this um, possible way in which, you know, the novel makes the case, although it's not my belief, um, that that freedom is really hard to get as a mother. Um, and I think that's because the book is tied to economics so much, mm. right? Like if these were all very different kinds of economic possibilities and stories uh, that might be different, but because of the economic world, it's really hard. And, and I think that that's the thing that you talk about family. The thing that ties this family together is they really do love each other. Um, one of the reasons they don't say the things at infuriating times to each other they should is they're always trying to protect each other. Not because they're afraid of saying direct things. They're a pretty direct family in that sense. It's more that the impact of the system has so little resilience that the impact on one could tank the others. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of wanting to save each other. I'm trying to do this without spoilers. There's, where there's this way they don't want to say, I don't want to tell you this horrible thing that happened that I can't do anything about, because then you're just going to be miserable and happy. You can't do anything about it. And then you'll 
you know, you're already having a hard time. So how does that make anything better? Or, you know, you're, then you're going to give me the, you know, last bit of resources you have, whether they're emotional, whether physical, whether they're financial to try to help me. And then you won't have them. And I can't take that. Like there's, there's, there's such fragility in the system has so little resilience that, um, that the protectiveness they feel for each other is what makes them a family. So that's kind of how I, in a nutshell, I see that. You talk a lot about the sounds and rhythms of your writing. Uh, you, you, you had a, a career at a mus as a musician in the past, which you, you kind of looked at it as not something that you, you focused on for a while, you stepped away because you didn't feel like you had accomplished what you wanted to. Whereas looking at what it is, it's, you, you open for bands that are my, are, are my, my favorites over here, like me at the Ramones or Faith No More or Modest Mouse or White Stripes. I mean, how, how is, how was, what was it like? I mean, here you are opening for the Ramones or Faith No More. God, well, those were, that's a long time ago on those shows because um, that was in Europe uh, in probably 90, whenever the, whenever uh, the, the real thing, the Brixton, right after the Brixton tours. Um, Faith, when, uh, yeah, uh, what's the, it's not the real thing. The real thing's the song. What's the name of the Angel record? Dust. Uh, uh, epic. Uh, the real thing was the record. Epic was the song. If we're talking about that first CD, if we're going to the second one, we're yeah. going the Angel Dust tour. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um, I think we were the next show after what they cut the live at Brixton show was right okay. before that, right? Um, yeah, that was, uh, you know, it was, it was fun. I was 19 uh, in, in that time period. And um, I was uh, very, very drunk. Uh, so I missed some of the finer points. Um, I have little stories from those events that will stay with me forever. Um, you know, uh, very briefly, like with the Ramones, you know, in Europe, they would travel with these huge semis of stuff because they were just like much more upscale traveling than mm -hmm. what they were getting in the U.S., right? And so it was Thanksgiving, we played with them in Austria. We played with them a couple times, right? You know, and, but they, uh, they were doing a tour and they pulled, you know, we're playing in Linz and, um, you know, we played, we played in Vienna first and then we went to Linz. Anyway, uh, it was Thanksgiving and they had a chef on tour with them. And the whole crew and everything there was like making this incredible Thanksgiving thing. Well, we were really broke. Now this is the second date. We were really, really broke. They had said after we played the first night with them, they're like, hey, you guys are great. You wanna come on, keep coming and playing with us? And we're like, great, but we had no money. We had no money, like none, zero. And it's like, well, how do you get, the, you know what I mean? Like then they said, you can come through Yugoslavia, but we didn't have any money. Like, and they weren't offering to pay us. They were just sort of like, hey, come open if you want. So, you know, we made it as far as like Linz, which is like a two hour drive, you know, <laughs> drive, you know? and, and um, we had like, I don't remember, but very, not much money, enough money just to get a meal, but we spent it on alcohol. And uh, cause that's was where my head was at at the time. And my drummer and I, uh, much to our bassist's chagrin, uh, you know, just bought some shots and that was it. There was none, right? And so, but then we were really hungry and to solve that problem, we were haunting the doorways while they did this big Thanksgiving, like three course meal and people were coming out scraping food in the trash because they were so stuffed. And we were, this is how messed up it was. This is how teenagers think sometimes. Um, 
I would be, I wouldn't be caught dead asking him for a plate of food. So I went into their locker and I stole a bottle of vodka and I left him a note. <laughs> you know, like, it's just like, it was just so like, uh, yeah. I had a really good talks with Joey Ramon at that, but he most, they were mostly about um, humi the benefit of humidifiers and, and green smoothies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I can imagine that it was complete opposite of talks you might have had with, say, Mojo Nixon, as, as, as another name I saw on your list. Yes, yes, Mojo <laughs> Nixon. Yeah, very different. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was, those were interesting times. I mean, I think that I, uh, like many, many people, uh, you know, a sense of actually abandonment is hard to find. You know, it's uh, very few people can actually experience a kind of abandonment, uh, um, which I think of as, um, you know, I have a predatory uh, self-awareness and self-consciousness that can come in or like, however, now that's, that can be self-obsession, that can be all sorts of, you know, bad things. It can be the part that like holds the anxieties. It can be anything, but it is a predatory mind, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways. And so that sense of like true abandonment that you can experience, you know, in a rock show or something like that or other forms, it's hard to come by. And I, I feel like it was always hard for me to come by. Uh, so to actually really fully live in the experiences of those things was not something that I allowed myself as much as I was the, the ticker tape was always going in my head. Mm -hmm. So I saw and noticed a lot of things around me, but I did not always feel a part of it or in it. Very human stuff, pretty average. Well, I've got one question that I'm dying to ask before we get to the, the final question here. Behind you, there is this unique looking instrument that I am dying to know what it is. Okay, so there's a bazooki <laughs> and a baklama, but they're both out of tune. Oh, or did you mean the... That, that one right there in the middle that looks like a cross between a, a trombone and... <laughs> okay, so this is also out of tune. There, so there's, there's something called a stro fiddle, which is when the violins were sort of the lead guitars of, of you know, folk and other forms of even classical, whatever, music for many years, when you start to see brass instruments come in, all of a sudden violins can't compete with brass instruments at the volume level, right? So in Turkey and other places, you start to th see things called stro fiddles and they're usually like a lot bigger and they, they sort of came to the idea of like, well, why not put a big horn on the end of a violin, <laughs> you know? Make it sound louder, you know? And so um, my boyfriend, uh, who makes all sorts of instruments. This just happens. I mean, he made those too, but he makes very amazing instruments of all kinds. Um, was experimenting initially to see just the functionality of a small stro fiddle. So it's got, you know, this is, I think this came from an old record player, the diaphragm here, and, you know, just sort of a soldered old horn. He carved this whole thing just by hand. Um, but, Anyway, so this thing is actually was an attempt at an early stro fiddle, but it doesn't, it works and it doesn't work. It works on recording in the sense of it gives it a very particular tone, but it's not super loud. The real stro fiddles you see, they'll have like these kind of crazy, much bigger things. But this one looks to me a little bit more like a gun. I'm not sure why, <laughs> but you know, like you can see it's got mm -hmm. this, it's either a fishing rod or a gun. <laughs> a blunderbuss of sound. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> I guess I'm holding it up now. Yeah. That's that it. So that's what that one is. Actually, that's a better way. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we are a library podcast, and uh, so I always like to ask some uh, our, our, the people that we're interviewing, do you have a library card? Yes, I do. Multnomah County Library. And what are some of your, your, your fondest library experiences? You know, um, I wish I, you know, Multnomah County is my home library, but in reality, um, because I also hold a lot of allegiance to the local bookstores here, whenever I see, I do try to buy writer's work uh, mm -hmm. to support them in that sense. Um, the library I grew up in that was really the most formative for me was the New York Public Library. And I mean, I, it was, it was many things. It, uh, it was right across, there was a, a branch right across the street, literally throw a stone at it from my house on Carmine Street in New York. And uh, that one, it held, I was a big, big reader. Like I, I got the sense of it going back to a library and looking at the uh, middle readers and looking at the, you know, uh, young adult stuff. Um, and I realized at one point, I, w I remember going down this whole shelf and realizing I had literally read, I would say 70%. Like I could not believe like that book, that book. I mean, like going through it, like anything that was of that age, you know, that time period, I had read almost everything they had in like three shelves of all of their, you know, collection. And, and it was really profound because I didn't even remember it till I was seeing all the covers. And, you know, I was definitely a four book a week reader um, you know, in, in libraries from about age. I mean, I, my first library experience was I got, <laughs> it was in Alaska and I had gone to the library because I was interested in archeology span and I had read about Heinrich Schliemann, speaking of problematic people, I had read about Heinrich Schliemann and, you know, the discovery of Troy and all of this. And I was fascinated and I went to get a book out of the library about Heinrich Schliemann and, you know, archeology. span and they wouldn't let me take it. Uh, and my dad had to come down to the library because it was, they said it was for a fourth grader reader and I was seven. And, you know, he had to sit there and I had to demonstrate that I could, you know, and I remember being just <laughs> horrified and, you know, at the disparagement. But, um, you know, libraries were not just for me a place of learning and, you know, exploration and other worlds. They were a respite from a sometimes very unhappy childhood. They were a respite from, you know, the predatory gaze of creepy men, you know, not that some were in the libraries, but there was a, other people in the libraries too. So <laughs> they were a respite from mean kids, you know, like there was just so many things that went into that space. Uh, the library at Reed is also incredible. It was another one that, you know, I, I love dearly. I mean, it's, it's a very different kind of library. It's not a big public library. You know, I was very, I remember when they took us downstairs and I got to see something like this book is from 1642. I'm like, you know, like I, <laughs> I really love that. You know, um, my, one of my biggest honors, you know, with this novel, don't get me wrong. It is lovely to have been nominated for the national book award, but the day that the New York public library put me on their front cover as one of their staff picks for two weeks was a really big day for me. So Multnomah County is the library that is my library now and that I, um, I go in, I hang out and I read there sometimes. And I love how it's also polling places and all these civic elements to it. Realistically, I tend to buy my books in literary fiction at this point more just because of my own commitment to support you know, indie bookstores and, and writers. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, libraries still play a big, big role in my life. And I, I listened to an interview where you said you had like seven bookshelves. Do you still have about seven bookshelves or at your a personal library? Oh, yes. I have, <laughs> uh, I have a personal library. It's, you know, I, I'll give you a second. At one point we moved and, um, and I had to um, get it down to 25 boxes. Um, and it was part of my... Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it was... Uh, <laughs> 25 boxes isn't that much really when you start putting in the shelves, you know, I mean, it, it but I, you know, every time I, I do that and I end up giving away some books and I do donations to the library quite a bit. Uh -huh. actually. And, um, and then they just, just yesterday, I was like, we need more shelves. And I, I, you know, there were, these are mine, these are Stefan's, uh, but I'm basically, they were on books, they were on another bookshelf. And I was like, I need that bookshelf. Can you clear your stuff off <laughs> you know, I mean, I know it was like very kindly said okay I can fit it into this if I move something I'm like because I'm already like clearing it out again so going for number eight you know yeah it's there's a lot there's a lot I would love someday floor to ceiling mm. you know stuff but I love I I feel guilty and a little bit nervous in saying this because I haven't been borrowing from the library for like probably the last six years that much but libraries have played such a big role in my life, my mental health, my safety, my access to information, my um, civic space, my learning, you know, just best things in the world. And the best way to cure that guilt, obviously, come on in. <laughs> yes. Well, and that's the thing is we're not open. Yeah. So <laughs> there's also that right now. Um, <laughs> Has there been any changes with your writing uh, processing with COVID or? Oh yeah, there's all sorts of changes. I mean, mm -hmm. to be blunt, you know, it's really hard to sell books when bookstores are closed. I mean, that's the simplest thing, especially for those of us who have like, uh, like it, you know, I, I feel very grateful about this, but like in, with past work and things, indie booksellers outsold Amazon on my book six to one and that's hand selling, like that's amazing. So it's really, you know, it's hard to not have the bookstores open and running like they would mm -hmm. be when you're trying to do a release, and particularly hardback, right? Mm -hmm. So that's new. But, um, you know, I think it, there's just not much to say about it, you know, that is short or quick. Uh, I feel very grateful. I feel like, you know, I love my editors, my press, the people who worked with me. Um, I am so fortunate that I find it very hard to um, whine about stuff that is different or hard, but sometimes it does because I do like to travel. I do like to see people face to face and there's just a very different energy to be talking to readers or to talk to you or to be in a library, you know, or things like that than, than to be, you know, in this format. Well, I mean, we could spend another hour asking all kinds of questions <laughs> for you here because, you have, <laughs> because you've had such a unique life. Um, but I, I wanted to thank you so much, Vanessa, for joining us here at the BCPL Unstacked. Thank you very much for having me. Copies of The Great Offshore Grounds are in the library collection for listeners who are looking for your next read, or it can be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>